Amen. That's what Christmas is all about, right? So first, I've got my Christmas sweater on. When my wife saw this, she went out and said, I had to have this. I'm not sure what that means, but there it is. It's right there. And I've got to say, I wasn't going to, but I've got to say, it feels good to be here. I've been online for weeks, and it just feels good to be here. So thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for what you've done. Um, listen, I, I'm going to date myself. I, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s, okay? 40, give me a break. <laughs> I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and, and one of the things that made Christmas kind of special was the Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? I mean, it, it just showed every year since 1965. Charles Schultz in 1965 um, wanted to have Linus read the Christmas story in Charlie Brown special, but that almost didn't happen. The, um, you know, the big shots, they said, you know, people really don't want to listen to Linus Reed from the King James Version on a Christmas special for Charlie Brown. They don't want that. But, but Charles Schultz was persistent. And also because, I won't go into the history of it, but there was a very tight production schedule that had to be met. So he was able to get his way, and the Christmas story, which you just saw, aired in the Christmas, Christmas, excuse me, Charlie Brown Christmas story. Um, listen, I wasn't going to say this either, but somebody said in the beginning, when we were back there um, earlier before the service started, I heard somebody make the comment, we were watching that, and they said, I wonder how long it'll be before they change that. Okay. I wonder how long that will be before they change that. I want you to know that even in the 60s, it had to be pushed. It had to be persistent. There was a fight to get the gospel on that show by Charles Schultz. So, so um, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in well-doing, okay? Um, but, but it aired on December 9th, 1965, for the first time. It was an enormous success, it, it, it was said that half of the TVs in America were tuned in on that show. It won an Emmy. It won a Peabody. Come on, Charlie Brown never wins anything. All right? But that won an Emmy and a Peabody. In, in, in our world, in our society, the rush to celebrate, sometimes the rush to celebrate Christmas our society does its very best to extract, if you will, the very principles of the person of Christmas out of the season. So what makes this story in Luke that we're going to talk about today important? It isn't because of the commercial success of Christmas, and it's been great, let's face it. I mean, for over a half a century, Christmas is commercially extremely successful. But, but what really um, is important that Luke presents this not as a fairy tale. You know, he doesn't say, once upon a time, in a land far, far away. Instead, he gives us a marker. We can date the story of Christ's birth. The marker is Caesar Augustus and Quirinius the governor. 
Luke 2.11, for unto you is born this day. This isn't a mythical day. It's not a fairy tale. It's a real day. It's a real place. It's a historical fact. It's a real day. It's a real place. And it happened in Bethlehem, which is only about 7,000 miles from here if you want to go visit. I know, I think Scott's been there. I think. I'm not sure. You'd have to kind of ask him. Um, so I'm going to take the time to read Luke 2, 1 through 20, because I, I just think hearing Scripture and hearing the story out of Scripture is important. So uh, let's read this. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest rooms available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today... In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as had been told. So this is the Christmas story out of Luke. I know it's a familiar passage. Many of you probably read it every Christmas. Again, a very familiar passage. But, but today, I really hope that there's a couple nuances that maybe you see that you hadn't seen before. A couple nuances that might just click in your spirit and help you understand the joy and the beauty of what Christmas is all about. So there's four key areas we're going to look at today. The first one is the irony of the king's birth. Um, th these are in your notes if you take notes. The irony of the king's birth, the humility of the manger, the anxiety of the shepherds, and the festivity of the angels. So the irony of the king's birth... <clears throat> A baby runs the world. A baby runs the world. 
I think in Luke it's mentioned four, maybe five times about this census, this decree to go to your homeland and, and take a census. So why is that important? It's important, as, as most of us know, because that decree took Joseph and Mary from Galilee, from Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, in Bethlehem. Now today, you know, if we took a census, basically they'd probably either mail it to us or send it to us online, right? And we'd fill it out and it'd be done. But in, in this day, you went to your ancestral home. You went back to where your family was from, and, and you took the census from there. And so this took Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, or to the city of David. Luke 2.1 talks about the days that the decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. And 2.4 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. <clears throat> Excuse me. It, it is important to connect Jesus and King David. It's important to connect that, that lineage, if you will. Um, Paul says later from a Roman prison in 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Again, as most of you would know, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he fulfilled prophetic words and foreshadowing from the Old Testament, specifically by a prophet named Micah. And Luke presents this child as, as a king, and no ordinary king. Remember, a baby is now running the world. I mean, this baby changed the scope of the world. But let's look at some of the other people that were in power in that day. Because that's always kind of interesting, don't you think? Caesar Augustus was one. Caesar Augustus, um, honestly, is, is the official title of, of almost every Roman emperor from around, I think, 27 BC. But it was also the proper name of a person by the name of Gaius Octavius. Octavius, I'm terrible with words. You know, my older sister's a speech pathologist. And she never worked with me. Anyway. But, but Gaius was a grandnephew of Julius Caesar and was made heir to the throne as a teenager. And he, he came to power. The Senate made him Augustus. Augustus really means lofty. It means ruler. It means the one above. And so they titled him Augustus after he defeated um, Mark Antony. In a, uh, in a political battle, if you will. And he did great things. I mean, he ended Rome's civil war. He, he enlarged the Roman Empire. He brought a lot of stability when chaos was there before. He was a big deal. He was important. He was powerful. But for all of his power... What happens? He serves as an unwitting agent of God. Why? Because the baby's running the world. Don't forget that. A baby's running the world. Caesar Augustus is, is really ignorant of how his decision to have a census was going to affect 
who Jesus was and the importance of the Messiah's birth. I mean, the last thing that he would have done as the ruler would have been to strengthen Jesus' claim to the title of Messiah, King of Kings. He would not have done that in the natural. But again, he's an unwitting agent of the power of God. God says, this is what's going to happen, all right? So Caesar is the primary power of the world as far as political positions. But there's another person that, that I think we need to see in this story that's very, very important, um, and that's Herod the Great. I'm not sure why he got the title the Great. I should have looked that up. Somebody researched that, you know, and put it out on the Novation Facebook page, because I'm not sure why. Now, Herod's not mentioned in Luke's rendition, but he is mentioned in Matthew's gospel. And, and Herod, when we see Julius Caesar as the primary power, maybe like the president today, probably really above the president. Herod's more of a governor. He's like a regional ruler. But one of the things that marked Herod's life was he was all about moving up. He was all about gaining more power. He was all about becoming more than who he was, climbing that ladder of power. We're introduced to him when the wise men alert him that there's a rival king born in Bethlehem. Remember, nearly everything he did was about moving up, gaining power. Um, he got his position as governor after beating a political rival in a really, really nasty, nasty battle. Yeah, that's not new either, right? <laughs> sometimes we think that's new. It's not new. It's been there forever. I think sometimes we see it more. But, um, but he understood how, how nasty these battles could be. His father was poisoned by a political opponent, so he understood how nasty they could be. Of course, Herod later killed that political opponent. But it's no wonder that he hated, he literally hated potential rivals. And he would do anything to eliminate a rival or even the possibility of a rival. He had his wife killed because of a perceived threat. And over a period of time, he killed his three sons over a threat of them being a rival to his power. He would extort, he would blackmail, he would kidnap. He would torture, execute people. What? For more power. Power. To move up. To be in charge. To be the person. His paranoid nature, again, was just a result of this need for power and control. And so, of course, when the wise men told him that the king of Jews had been born, you think he enjoyed hearing that? No, no, not even. As most of you know, he killed every male child under the age of two in Bethlehem in an attempt to get rid of this rival. Think about that. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes... Sometimes I read this like it's a fairy tale. Oh, he killed all, the, he killed all the, the young boys under two. But remember, this, this is a real place. This is a real time. 
This isn't a fairy tale. This is a genocide to rid Herod of his rival because he wanted that power. So why, why is it important? Why is it significant to look at Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great as we talk about Luke's rendition of, of the Christmas story? I think it's important because Caesar would flex his political muscle to do whatever he chose. I want to have a decree. I don't care if you have to walk 90 miles to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I don't really care if you have to take a month out of your life to go get this done. Herod the Great is all about gaining power, prestige, higher and higher, more, more, more. But you know what? Both, both of their reigns ended. The baby that runs the world, no end. That reign is forever. That reign is eternal. So it's significant to see the power of the world being unwittingly used by God, again, to fulfill his purpose, to fulfill his kingdom. All right, the second is humility. So we see a king born in a manger. Now, Christmas has not always been celebrated with the fanfare and the public way that we know it today. It really hasn't. In fact, it was 1912 before New York City publicly placed the first community Christmas tree. And it was 1923 before, I think it was Kelvin Coolidge, yeah, I have to look here. President Coolidge lit the first national Christmas tree on White House's front lawn. So, so you know, it's been around for over 2,000 years, but in America, our celebration is actually quite young. But Luke takes us back even further to the origins of Christmas. That, that, he's got that camera lens wide open right now, and he's looking at the Roman Empire, and now all, he's going to focus that. He's going to come back and specifically focus that on a couple. He's going to focus that on Joseph and Mary in verse 4 and 5. And what is, what is seen here, what is pictured here is really a simple life. A common life, a common couple. Here's the baby king that's placed in a feeding trough. He was born in a room normally reserved for animals. This isn't a fairy tale. This is a real place. This is a real time. The gift from the father was born and placed in a feeding trough in a barn. There's reasons for that. Think about it. We'll talk a little more. Humility colors this entire scene. Humility is what this scene is all about. You see, Luke isn't simply reporting, but he's also, he's a teacher. If you you know much about Luke, he really was a teacher. He wanted to make sure that things were, were understood correctly. And throughout this story, he's foreshadowing some of those significant events in Jesus' future. We see in this story that he's, he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. Hmm. It would have been odd, don't you think, for the Savior of the world who's going to die naked on a cross to be wrapped in the royal color of purple as a baby. But the swaddling cloths fit him well. Humility. And then they laid him in the manger because there was no place for him in the end. It was entirely consistent for the one who's going to be buried in a borrowed tomb. He doesn't even have his own tomb. To also be born 
in a shed, in a barn, in somebody's backyard. While Caesar lives in the lap of luxury, <laughs> you know, he's got anything he wants, and, and a lot of that money, okay, comes from the census, because <laughs> what's the census for? To increase taxes, and taxes pay Caesar's luxurious lifestyle. While he lives in, in the lap of luxury, we see the Son of God lying in a feed trough. The significant significance of that is from the manger forward, the king of kings, the baby king and the king of kings would have no guards. He would have nobody surrounding him, no entourage to protect him from those that were sick and needy and and had needs and needed help who could then easily touch him. Here in the manger, his ear would hear even the faintest cries, the faintest cries of mercy. I mean, let's face it, who really thinks about etiquette when you're walking into a barn? You walk into the barn. Do you walk into the president's Oval Office? No. See, unlike Herod, unlike Caesar Augustus, the king of kings is accessible. No one, no one is, is left out. And Christmas is also the story of Christ coming down. And and this is, to me, very, very key. He voluntarily humbled himself of his deity. He emptied himself. Philippians 2, 7 says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So why is this important? Again, there are no people There are no guards between you and the King of Kings. Isn't that good news? Nobody is going to keep you away from the King of Kings. While you can't, like I said, while you can't gain access to the president, I don't think, maybe. Is there anybody out here who can walk in the Oval Office? Good, okay. How about online? I mean, just text me, okay? You know, we don't walk into the Oval Office, but... But we can, we can be in front of, of the king of kings because he's humble. He's accessible. For all of his glory, for all of his transcendence, he became lowly, emptied himself, and available to all. So we see the humility. Now we want to look at the anxiety. Angels appeared out of anywhere. Excuse me, angels appeared out of nowhere. They just, boom, all of a sudden there they were with the shepherds. And what does it say about the shepherds? <laughs> They were sore afraid. I love that. They were sore afraid. Anyway, why? Why were the shepherds afraid? I mean, shepherds are a tough lot. If you didn't know that, you know, do a little history on shepherds. And they lived a tough life. And they fought animals and they protected their flock. And they lived in the pastures in the dark. So if they're living in the dark, why would they be afraid if the light comes on? Now, I'm not going to say that when I was little, I was scared of the dark. But my, my, my sisters need to have nightlights. But we see the shepherds, and the light comes on, and, and it's scared. And I think that's a little bit odd. So I did a little work and did a little study. And actually, the word light doesn't even appear in the story. Luke 2.9 says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory 
of the Lord shone round them. The word in the original language means radiance, brightness, or splendor, but it's a special kind of light. It's a light from the glory of God. And this is one of those nuances that I hope maybe that you haven't seen, and it, it might click. But, but it's the glory of God. That's what frightened the shepherds. And we, we understand the uniqueness of it because of their fear. But to really understand this fear, we have to go back several thousand years, even before this story. We need to see their fear through the eyes of the world's first couple, Adam and Eve. Every day, we read in Scripture that Adam and Eve walked with God. They walked with God in the Garden of Eden, and, and, and the glory of God was in full display, but they weren't afraid. They were built for this special kind of a relationship. They were built to be around the glory of God. But one day, the glory of God shined, and what does it say? It says a couple was sore afraid. What changed? Every other day had been fine, but on this one day, this, this special transcendent light, this glory of God came into their presence, and they were sore afraid. Because the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, had come to them and to tell this first couple, and listen, I, I, he's still telling this to us today. Listen well. He's still saying this to us today. You really need to be in charge of your own life. Only you know what's right and wrong. You need to decide for yourselves. You must be your own boss, your own God. So Adam and Eve said, yeah, let's do it. They became their own gods, their own kings. Well, now, let's talk a little bit. How many of you have ever made out a resume? Okay, yeah. Has anybody ever padded their resume? Just a little bit. No, no, you wouldn't need to, okay? Have you ever gotten a job that you're not qualified for? <laughs> okay, you're flat not qualified, and all of a sudden you have this job, and you don't know how to do it. So what happens? You're defensive. You're anxious. You're frightened by criticism and critique, and you're always kind of you know, looking over your shoulder, like, like what's going to happen? And if somebody would actually show up in your place of employment, in your department, who's qualified for your job, and you're not, who knows how to do what you're supposed to be doing, and you don't, I mean, when that person gets near you, you're so afraid. Why? The reason is the closer they get, the more your imposterness is revealed. Imposterness, I think that's a real word. I'm not sure. If not, we'll make it one today. But you're revealed as an imposter. The more it's possible for people to see and for you to see that you're unqualified for the job. This is that special kind of light, the glory of God that shows that, that points that out. We don't have what it takes to be our own king. We don't have what it takes to be our own God. Whenever God gets close and the glory of God comes close to us, he shows us that we're not God. His light, his transcendence reminds us that we don't have the power to be a God. But the Bible tells us that we, we have all retained, just as Adam and Eve, the rights over our own lives. Because we 
want to be in charge. And somebody out there is probably saying, I don't want to be in charge. Yes, you do. You might not think so, but you want to be in charge. We want to be our own bosses. We want to decide what's right and wrong. We don't want to submit to anyone else. We don't want to submit to an authority, to a higher power. We've become our own gods. And by doing that, we've taken job, a job that we are highly unqualified for. We don't have the skills for it. We weren't built for it. We are not God. And that's why there's this fear of failure, this fear of anxiety of moving forward that many of us face. So now let's get to the good part. Fourth, the festivity, all right? The Savior is born. We can be happy. We can be festive. The report of the angels to the shepherds, Luke 2.10. And the angels said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So why is this good news? Why is this great joy? Now, I don't know about you. I can say this now. My mom passed away um, July of last year, I think. Gosh, that's terrible. Yes. No. Year before last. She's still with me in my heart. My mom was a perfectionist. God bless her. You know, a perfectionist loves to take great pains and give them to you. (sighs) But many of us are perfectionists. We want to be perfect. We want everything to be perfect. We know that things should be perfect. And so we strive for perfection. We strive to do the right thing, to live the right way, to be who we're supposed to be, to have this facade of, I'm perfect. How are you? Right? Listen, Jesus' standards are so much above ours. (laughs) They are perfection. Jesus says that you know deep down inside that as you're trying to strive for perfection, that you should be perfect and live right and do the right things and be kind and be nice and on and on and on, then you'll never, ever, ever be able to rest until you know that you're perfect. So you're doomed forever, right? Because <laughs> there's no way. There's no way you could achieve perfection. So you're doomed forever. Unless... You look at the answer, and that answer is what we're talking about today. If you receive the Father's Christmas gift to you, Christ as Savior, if you receive that Christmas gift from the Father, then you are perfect in God's sight. In a nutshell, that's the gospel, right? In a nutshell, we are imperfect, he is perfect, we receive that gift. His perfection covers our imperfection. That's terrible. Another thing that goes hand in glove with perfection is that fear of rejection. We touched on it a little bit earlier, but there are many of us here that, that are afraid of rejection. We're afraid of failure because you know there's somebody out there that knows the job better than you do because you're not qualified for it. We know we're flawed, we know we're broken, and we're scared and afraid of rejection. We, we don't have the power of God to run our lives, we don't have the glory of God to run our lives, and the perfection of God to be who we are. 
in ourselves. And so as a result, we always have this, this amount of anxiety about our lives. And, and sometimes, sometimes, like with the shepherds, when the glory of God, when the light of God, when the transcendent holiness of God shows up, it points out our incompetence. It points out our, fa- our failures. And deep down, you know you're really not capable of, ru- of running your own life. You and I are just like the shepherds. We're afraid of the light. We're afraid of the glory of God. Yet one of the things I want us to see today is the grace of God in his glory. Because there is the grace of God in his glory. And, and, and this is another nuance that I, I want you to kind of grasp if you haven't before. But before you can really experience the joy and the wonder of Christmas, you need to experience the fear of Christmas. Because there is a holiness of God, a transcendence of God that is above us. And we need to understand that. And we need to understand our incompetence in trying to run our own lives and being our own God. But don't hate that light. Don't hate the glory of God. <clears throat> Anything that brings home <clears throat> to you and I that delusional nature that, that we're in charge, that lie that, that says that um, if I'm disciplined, if I work hard, if I control myself, I can run my own life and I can be in charge. It's a lie. It's a delusion. And eventually, because and by God's grace, he will reveal that. And that fear, you'll be a little scared, just like the, the shepherds. You'll be sore afraid. If the holiness of God, the power of God comes, comes on us, outside of of being covered by the blood of Christ, we'll be sore afraid. We just really will because we'll see our inadequacies. So why does he do that? Why does he make us feel inadequate? Why does he bring his holiness to make us sore afraid? Simple. He says, I've given you a Christmas gift. Please receive it. Let my perfection cover your imperfection. Please receive that. It's as simple as that. That's the Christmas story. That's it. In a nutshell, it's not a fairy tale. Remember, this is a real place. This is a real day. And, and as we close, um, you know, I'm going to pray, but I want you to, those in this room and those that are watching, I just want you to quiet your hearts, and I want you to think of two things. One of those is I want you to think about the fear of Christmas. I want you to think of Adam and Eve that were able to walk in the presence of the holiness of God. And then all of a sudden, they weren't able to. I want you to think of that. And then I want you to think about the joy of Christmas. I want you to think about God's gift to you, to you. Listen, this is not a fairy tale. This is a real place. Today's a real day. Many of us have have received that gift, and that's fantastic. And some of us, I think, have lost the meaning and the power of that gift. And there may be some out there that have never received this gift. And I'm asking you today, think about this gift. Think about this gift. So those are the two things I want you to think about. And then I have one action point 
that I want you to, to do. I want you to quit striving for perfection and walk away from fear and rejection. Walk away from it. Quit striving. Lay it down. Accept that gift that God has given us. And again, if you've accepted it and been walking in it, fantastic. But don't let apathy overtake the power of the gift. In this day and age, it gets beat down, it gets beat down, and it gets beat down. Don't let apathy negate the power of this Christmas gift, his son, his salvation, our perfection in Christ. And let's pray. Father, I, I thank you. I thank you for your gift. <laughs> Lord, I thank you that we can come in this place today in person. <laughs> We're essential. Hallelujah. And receive your gift and walk in the knowledge that you make us perfect in our brokenness. I pray that as we as we leave, that the joy of this season would overshadow the fear of our inadequacy because you have made a way for us to boldly come before your throne and have a relationship with you. Guide us, direct us, use us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.